today on Millennial. I just feel like the bar is so low for what constitutes as being liberal or left-leaning. Yeah. It's like, oh, you want equal rights for all humans? Congratulations, you're liberal. You want to save a tree? Congratulations, you're liberal. (laughs) I have never been so queer-baited as I was with Albus and Scorpius. I wrote a whole (laughs) fan fiction that was printed in an actual book. They might as well have had Harry come out on stage at the end and be like, no homo. I know that you've taken the drive up and down the five quite a number of times. It's all agriculture. Yeah, including one very, very smelly farm that you have to turn your air off when you pass. The cow farm. (laughs) It's so bad. You want to die when you go by it. And then you get McDonald's like an hour later. (laughs) You're like, screw you cows. I'm going to show you. Welcome to Millennial 842. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. This is the home of pretend adulting and real talk and some good news occasionally. There is some good inflation news. Just this past week, the consumer price index slowed to a 7.7% gain in the year through October, less than 7.9% that analysts had expected and down from 8.2% in the year through September. So inflation did tick down a bit. The report provides early evidence that the Fed's campaign to slow rapid inflation may be helping to ease price pressures alongside recent healing in supply chains. So that's nice news. I don't think it's readily apparent when you go into the store right now, but it's nice to see that the data is showing that it's starting to tick down. That said, here's what ticked up in price in the last month. Fuel restaurants, cereals, bakery products, alcohol, rent, meat, poultry, fish, eggs, new cars. So that's a lot. But what ticked down was dairy, apparel, fruits and veggies, airline fares, used cars, and trucks. You know what's really funny is I definitely noticed cereal because I was just out here trying to make some Rice Krispie treats, you know, as a fun little surprise for some house guests. And It was like $5 for a box of Rice Krispies at the grocery store. I don't know what they normally cost. What do they normally cost? (laughs) I just feel like, I don't know. I was really only expecting to spend like three bucks, but it wasn't even for, you know, like a family size. So I just pivoted to making cookies because that ended up being more economical. You literally canceled the Rice Krispie treats because you didn't want to spend the five bucks. It was like five and some change and I just couldn't justify it. They're not that good. Oh, Snap, Crackle and Pop are so sad that you didn't buy them. Poor little dudes. Well, they got to get on my level in terms of budget. I did out actually reach out for comment to Lucky the Leprechaun, and he said he was having difficulty sourcing Lucky Charms, the actual Lucky Charms, hence the continued price increases. Well, yeah, they're sourcing those from Ireland, right? So. Right. They're magically expensive and difficult. To f- <laughs> Is that offensive? <laughs> I'm going to make a really bad joke about the potato famine, but I think you've covered the offensive. <laughs> there we go. They're magically expensive. I'm just, I'm just impersonating a cartoon character. So anyway, hope to see more good news like that coming after the midterm elections. That was pretty nice to see. And actually, speaking of the midterms. Yes. So we've got a couple of updates from or since we talked about the midterm elections on last week's episode. Um, Probably the biggest news since that time is that Democrats have officially maintained their Senate majority 
And it actually looks like there is a chance for us to uh, push to having an, an even slightly larger majority, depending on how the Georgia runoff goes between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker coming up here on December the 6th. For all my Georgia people, early voting starts on the 28th, I think. So make your plan, request your absentee ballot, vote early, or plan to show up on the 6th because we need y'all's votes. Obviously, this would put us at a 51-49 majority in the Senate, which is very good for Democrats. The House, you know, there are still 14 races outstanding. And currently, we have 205 Democrats versus 216 Republicans. This is pretty much in line with what we predicted on this most recent episode, that Republicans are going to take the House, albeit with a very narrow majority, which is surprising for a midterm, surprising to see that it wasn't worse, honestly, for comparison's sake. Um, In Obama's first midterm election, I think he lost like 63 House seats. Mm -hmm. So this could have been so much worse. And as we talked about last week, it's just going to be a lot harder for Republicans. And it sounds like Speaker McCarthy to get very much Done. Laura, last week I was talking about how tight the Senate race was here in Nevada. It was very stressful. Yeah. Catherine Cortez Masto did win, and thus that kept Democrats in control of the Senate. The race was called Saturday nights, so we had to wait several days, and it was a very tight race. But they called the race for Masto while I was in Taco Bell ordering your black bean chalupas per your recommendations in recent months. So I just thought it was beautiful and destiny that this would come down as I'm in Taco Bell, Laura's favorite restaurant. Yep, definitely my favorite restaurant. (laughs) Did it taste just as good as you imagined? Was it amplified by the victory yes yes it had that it had that extra sweet hot dems winning sauce all over it and it tasted very very good i actually liked it this is the first time i had black beans in my uh, taco bell it's good and right yeah i agree that was a good call so anyway i was just really happy that that all timed out so perfectly but question about 50 senators or 51 senators for democrats what is the difference between the two because we also have the tiebreaker kamala harris how does that all work now yeah so if we get you know if warnock is reelected um to the senate here in georgia um that will give us 51 senators. When you add in Kamala Harris, we have 52 votes. Um, and that helps in a few different ways. One, it's going to be easier to get judges confirmed. This is going to be super important because, as we know, Mitch McConnell stole three Supreme Court seats and Trump appointed a hell of a lot of federal judges. So Biden being able to push his confirmations through faster is going to be a very good thing. Um, The way that, you know, the Senate is right now with it, I mean, effectively tied, save for the tie-breaking vote, is that we have to um, share, we have to share on committees. So if you have the Senate, you know, Judiciary Committee, for example, they currently have to vote 
on admit or excuse me, on advancing a judge to the Senate to be confirmed. But if Democrats have a 51 seat majority in the Senate, plus Kamala Harris, they would no longer have to do that. They could advance Biden's judicial nominees immediately as opposed to waiting on this um, power sharing um, agreement that we have in the committees. That also applies to any kind of legislation. Um, So Democrats would be able to bring legislation to the floor without committee sharing agreements getting in the way as well, which is another good one. Um, And 51 seats in the Senate actually just gives Democrats a little more breathing room heading into 2024, because we know Republicans are going to want to block any item on the Biden agenda. And it also gives them a little more room for a dissenter here and there, which would, you know, prevent that one person from blocking the entire agenda. How do our resident Senate chaos twins factor into all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So it definitely is going to strip Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema of some power here. We remember that, you know, Manchin single-handedly killed Build Back Better because he wouldn't get on board. Um, Not to say that they couldn't still tank things, but there will be more pressure um, because there is a very clear majority here for them to get on board. But it also allows one of them to be an epic pain in the ass without tanking the entire agenda, which is kind of what we were dealing with before this. And again, it's just going to give Democrats more breathing room on Biden agenda items. So if if one Democrat say, you know, your Joe Manchin, your Kirsten Cinema, sometimes Bernie Sanders, although he's not technically a Democrat, he just caucuses with them. Um, it just gives us a little more comfort <laughs> over these next couple of years. One of them can say no, then comma could break the tie. Exactly. If mm-hmm. we have 51. Okay, cool. I like it. I'll take it. We also know, and this is kind of vomit worthy news. Former President Trump is supposed to be announcing a 2024 run like any minute here Mm -hmm. on the night that we're recording this show. Um, So we are keeping an eye out for that. I think we can all imagine what his announcement is going to be like. So (laughs) we probably don't even need to watch the thing. We can fill in the blanks. But we also know that there's going to be a Trump v. DeSantis showdown because we know Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, obviously has plans to run in 2024. And Trump has already been lobbing many grenades in DeSantis's, or as he calls him, DeSanctimonious, in his direction. (laughs) So the fireworks uh, are going to be real. Ron DeSanctimonious is not going to stick. That is too large a word for his supporters. Also, Mike Pence might be a big factor here. Clearly, Pence and Trump are not going to be running together. But Pence has a new book coming out soon. Sigh. And he has been promoting that. And he's been very critical of Trump in interviews I've seen in the last few days, like more critical than I would have expected. So if he decides to run two, which I guess seems possible, very possible, uh, there's going to be fireworks there. So it'll be fun to watch until a nominee is decided and it's 
Trump, DeSantis, whoever versus Biden, and then it's going to get really stressful. So I guess just enjoy the show until then. <laughs> uh, I don't even know what to think of Pence's viability as a candidate. Part of me thinks maybe it's too soon after Trump. Mm-hmm. And really, Pence was a steadfast vice president and extremely loyal to Trump until Trump tried to get him killed on January 6th. The pro-Trumpers are still such a force that I don't know how Pence is going to match up to that. And I do think you make a good point because I think diehard Trumpers are probably still pissed off at Pence for not reversing the results. But then on the other hand, we are starting to see Republicans try and um, distance themselves from Trump, you know, there have been a couple of said that, like, we need to stop focusing on making our entire party a personality and focus more on the issues. And that kind of leads all of us to believe that they're going to start backing DeSantis, who has been, you know, showcasing that he can produce results one way or the other. So I don't know. It's hard to tell whether they would go all in or kind of jump ship as a result of just the fact that he's going to be forever linked to Trump purely on the basis of the fact that he was his vice president. So, yeah. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on if Republicans continue, or at least the Republican establishment continues trying to freeze Trump out. We can definitely see in the wake of these midterm results where Republicans severely underperformed. Like, I cannot underscore that enough. Um, And Trump is really the one taking a lot of the blame. If you look at party leaders, if you look at any of the talking heads on Fox News or Twitter or, you know, the Daily Wire, I think is another one that people just love. They're all blaming Trump. So it just depends on if voters get on board with that. And I guess we won't know for a little while. The New York Post, too. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's nice to see this about face will it stick that's the big question will they keep their spines or will they go back to supporting trump we'll just have to see yeah i love josh Hawley, by the way in recent days oh yeah saying the old republican party is dead i'm like you were one of the instigators of january 6th you fuck face there's a photo of you putting up a <laughs> fist to the protesters yeah. like you were supporting them. You encouraged them. And now you're one of the good guys. Get out of yeah. here. Mitch McConnell also had harsh words for the MAGA Republicans today as well. He didn't call them such, but it was clear who he was hinting at yeah. in his remarks criticizing uh, the midterm election results. Well, we had some other items from the midterms that we didn't really get a chance to touch on last week and a couple of things that have happened since then. Um, so we know that... Several states had slavery on the ballot as a ballot measure to remove slavery as a form of punishment for prisoners from their state constitutions. And seems that the only state to vote no on taking slavery out of their constitution was Louisiana. Yikes. Great. (laughs) Something that I also wanted to point out is that Katie Hobbs won the governor's race in Arizona. Um, She's a Democrat. Obviously, I think she was our preferred candidate here on the panel. But something that I wanted to point out is that she is the current secretary of state in Arizona, which means that 
she is overseeing the election that she's running in as a candidate. That is BS. Mm. Many of her opponents are rightly calling this out as BS. And I agree. If you are a secretary of state and you are running for governor in the state where you are secretary of state, you should recuse yourself. You should not be in the position of overseeing that election. Yes. However, the same opponents who are calling her out for this didn't have shit to say when Brian Kemp did the exact same thing in Georgia in 2018. Just like gerrymandering, we have to be consistent. Nobody should be able to do this. Yeah. There was a great tweet from Liz Cheney throwing some serious shade. A few weeks ago, Carrie Lake, who's at odds with Liz Cheney, had sarcastically said, thank you, Liz, for helping me win voters. And that sarcasm was tweeted out in late October. Liz quote tweeted the sarcasm just yesterday with a, you're welcome, Carrie. Such an awesome amount of pettiness that I absolutely live for. I know. Quote tweeting something from three weeks ago (laughs) that is now biting Carrie in the ass. Wonderful. Oh, man. Whoever runs Liz Cheney's Twitter account must have just like either liked that tweet or just saved the link to it so they could easily go back and reference it later. We also know that coming up this week, Senate Democrats are supposed to be holding a vote on codifying same-sex marriage protections. So this is pretty exciting stuff. We know that, you know, the current standing of Congress is going to be the same until January when new members are sworn in. But we still will need 10 Republicans to cross party lines to vote in favor of this. And I'm just wondering, in light of their recent Senate loss, do we think 10 Republicans will feel safe enough to do that? Well, maybe because there are actually some concessions in this bill. And this is why I'm actually a little less excited about this than I would be. Quotes, language ensuring that churches, universities, and other nonprofit religious organizations could not lose tax-exempt status or other benefits for refusing to recognize same-sex marriages and could not be required to provide services for the celebration of any marriages. So there's still some loopholes for people to Mm -hmm. jump around and say, we don't recognize same-sex marriages. The bill would not require any state to allow same-sex couples to marry. Also, I mean, like, come on. That seems like something that should be included. But it would repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which denied federal benefits to same-sex couples. So, you know, it's better than nothing, but it definitely doesn't go far enough. Yeah. On the other hand, maybe this is how it gets passed. And maybe... Starting in the new session in January, Democrats can push for some more robust protections for same-sex couples. That would be my hope. Yeah. Perhaps they're viewing this as a stepping stone showing, hey, we got bipartisan support on this. Now we can take it a couple steps further in the new term. That would be my hope. But yeah, I mean, it's it's so weird because reading... These loopholes takes me back to like 2005. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like this is from an article that was written in 2005, honestly. (laughs) It also does feel like we've we've come so far that it's kind of exhausting to think about the fact that we still have to think about this in general. Um, and, And this is just such a sobering reminder of the fact that it's not 
something that's set in stone. And I think everybody's kind of looking at this and thinking, well, look at what happened with Roe versus Wade. And now we we just can't sit still. And nor should people in power sit still. By the way, real quick, remember earlier this year when that bill came up in the Senate to abolish daylight savings time and we would permanently Mm -hmm. just be an hour ahead? Yeah, there's been no update on that (laughs) for everybody wondering why. Ever since they they mentioned that every time daylight savings rolls around, which obviously isn't too often, I think like, weren't we supposed to get rid of this already? Yeah. Yeah, So I think the original language was that we would revert to standard time one more time Uh and that in the spring we would go back to daylight savings and then stay i feel like we're just chronically on that one more time though it's like groundhog day but we had real progress because that bill actually passed in the senate but then it had to go to the house where now it's completely stalled out so there was like a big half leap that was very exciting and yeah, no progress, because now I'm just looking quickly. Apparently now congressmen are like, oh, should we have even done that to begin with? So I just it's not going to happen. But I know. It was and nice I wish to it think would. about. Yeah, because y'all know that is one of it's one of the things that I complain about all the time. Mm-hmm. I hate the time change. It serves no purpose anymore except to make me tired and grumpy twice a year, especially in the spring. But for some good news. Um, We won't have full numbers on this for a few more weeks, maybe even a few months. Um, But Gen Z and young millennials, uh, aka people under 30, really turned out in the midterms. And what we do know from exit polling is that voters under 30 canceled out voters over the age of 65. Ah. So great job, Gen Z. Great job, young millennials. Um, These geriatric millennials on this show are cheering (laughs) you guys on. Um, But what's really exciting about this is that we had something like 8.5 million Gen Zers come of age to vote in this year's midterms. And it looks like somewhere in a a similar range of that, around 8 million will come of age for 2024. So it's very exciting to see the changing demographics in terms of age. And um, given how heavily Gen Z in particular breaks for Democrats, this could be a good sign for 2024. Not saying that it's foolproof. But it's a step in the right direction. And again, I am just so thankful for our younger counterparts because I really feel like Gen Z is doing what millennials in some cases failed to do. Um, Even looking back at 2016, where millennials basically went 50-50 for Trump and Clinton. So I think Gen Z is just proving to be a far more engaged and progressive generation than certainly we were when we were their age. So bravo. I'm proud of y'all. And now we can all save America. We just have to stay to the left of center, even just a little bit as we get older, because you look at the stats and it's like the older the the demographic, the more right leaning they are. So as long as we don't shift right over time, we're going to save America. We're going to do this. I'm not. 
you're not what saving America. I mean, not single handedly, but I, <laughs> you know, I've heard that adage over time that you get more conservative as you get older. I call bullshit on that because that has not been my experience. I want to agree with you. I'm just looking at the demographics and yeah. seeing how, you know, but I, I hope you're I, I think you're right. I think you're right. You grow up knowing gay people, trans people. You carry that with you. You know, you grow up with abortion rights till suddenly you don't have them. You're worried about your future and your children's future in terms of the environment. I just feel like the bar is so low for what constitutes as being liberal or left leaning. It's like, oh, you want equal rights for all humans? I know. It's not a high bar. Congratulations. You're liberal. You want to save a tree? Congratulations. You're liberal. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite low. I know. It honestly doesn't help that we don't have a true progressive party in this country, um, because obviously my views align overwhelmingly with the Democratic Party, and that's where I vote because of that. But when you look at other Western countries and their progressive parties, the Democrats look like a center-right party when you compare it to the rest of the world. So it it's really hard being a progressive and looking at the two options that we have and basically having to pick the one that is closest to what you think. It's the lesser of two evils. <laughs> yeah. I think the there's a very clear choice there, for sure. And I, I think that the Democratic agenda is far better for the people. But there are still a lot of areas where even our left-leaning party is pretty conservative. This uh, point that you put in here about Gen Z and young millennials really turning out it it really made me think of what we were talking about last week in terms of somebody like a Gavin Newsom running potentially for presidency. Um, I know that I said last week that I, you know, I didn't really feel like maybe he could win just based on what we had seen when Biden defeated Trump. But Something like this kind of gives me hope that people would be more open minded to voting for him and that he might actually have a shot, which would be great because, you know, we love Gavin over here in California and it would be great to see him put some of the stuff he's implemented in this state to use on a national scale. So we can be optimistic for now, y'all. I know. We can. I know. <laughs> Trump hasn't announced he's running yet. We have like another hour of optimism <laughs> running through our veins. So I wanted to talk about the idea of queer baiting this week as a result to a recent headline you might have seen regarding one of the stars of Netflix's Heartstopper adaptation. But before we get into that, I wanted to kind of give a little bit of a background on the term itself in case anybody listening doesn't exactly know what it means. So for a little bit of context, the word queer baiting has been steadily gaining momentum over the course of the past 10 years or so. But an article that Andrew actually found from Vice points out that the word itself is relatively new, but the concept that it defines 
is not new. So this is something that's been going on for a long time. So at its core, what queer baiting is, is a term that was coined in relation to any form of media that hints at LGBTQ plus representation in an effort to rope viewers in without actually ever making the characters in question explicitly queer. And there are a lot of advantages to queer baiting. The number one being that creators can offer the allure of having quote unquote good representation, which would in uh, effectively incite uh, or excite audiences that are seeking that kind of representation out, whether they are somebody that identifies as queer themselves or just somebody that's looking for better representation in their media. And they can do all this without actually having to deal with any of the repercussions that they might have to deal with if they explicitly went the next step and actually stated, you know, without a doubt, this thing is meant to be gay. The subtext that you're seeing in this piece of media is correct. Before we get any further, I wanted to know if anybody had any examples of queer baiting that particularly stand out to them or have stood out to them over the years. Yeah. So getting back to the original example, queer baiting in media, I mean, a big one that jump out, jumps out to me, of course, is Dumbledore. That's one where J.K. Rowling kind of retconned the character's sexuality. Disney has been guilty of this many times in recent years. Luca, there is that quick lesbian kiss at the end of Star Wars. There was the blinking you'll miss at gay moment in Beauty and the Beast. And these are all in like the past like five, six years. So that's been really frustrating to see, especially because there are very recent examples. But then I was looking around and I saw an interesting point brought up. And now this is in the real world. This happens on social media. Like there's a lot of challenges or trends on TikTok or Instagram in which say like, you know, gay kiss challenge and two straight guys who are really hot are like sitting next to each other and like, oh, are we going to do it? How how close are we going to get our lips to one another? And that's queer baiting because you're making people continue to watch the video to see if you're actually going to kiss. But what they're actually doing is keeping people watching for a long time. So then TikTok sees, oh, people are watching this video for a long time. I'll bump it up into other people's feeds. So they're really just taking advantage of people's thirstiness. And so that seems like a huge example of queer baiting to me in terms of the 2022 definition. That's a really good point that you bring up, actually, because I see that all the time on TikTok. Um, lots of go to part two type videos <laughs> yeah. as well. And like and subscribe for more. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, you know, an example that comes to mind for me that I know was brought up by some um, as an example of, of what they interpreted as queer baiting. And I, I don't necessarily know that I see it that way, but I'm also, I don't identify as queer, so I may not be the right person to say. But I remember in Captain Marvel... There were some interpretations that um, Carol Danvers living with her best friend, Maria Rambo, and her young daughter living sort of like as a family unit um, because Maria was a single mom, presumably. There were some who kind of felt that living arrangement and just the way those characters interacted with each other felt like queer baiting. I can definitely see how a studio like Disney would lean into something like that, not saying they necessarily did that 
for Captain Marvel, but I can see them leaning into a scenario like that to give viewers the question, are they, aren't they? And to sort of create some buzz and some conversation about the movie, the show. Even I feel like in, uh, I don't know if anyone here has seen Wakanda forever yet, yet. but there's a moment at the end of that movie too that is again like a blink and you'll miss it (laughs) type moment. Um, And it really just does raise the question like, is it 2022 or not, guys? Right. (laughs) You know, this reminds me, Pam, I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2015, at the height of the new Star Wars trilogy, one of our writers, Natalie Fisher, she wrote this huge piece. Is Star Wars setting up Poe Dameron as its first queer protagonist? This article was one of the top performing articles on Hypable ever. And it's to the point of the conversation that we're having here. Star Wars, etc. will kind of put that carrot out in front of us, and you can read between the lines to see that potentially happening. Yes, Star Wars is setting up Poe to be the first queer protagonist. And then two more movies come and go, and they don't. But this article did really well because they started leading people that way, and they probably knew that people would get very excited at that thought, and this article liked and shared widely because people really wanted to see it happen. And then they're invested in the next two Star Wars movies. And then they're thinking about Poe, talking about him online. And it was all for nothing. In our head, he may have been gay, but not in the movies. Yeah, I think that's a really great example. And then even to get back to your original example of Dumbledore, which is something from Harry Potter, I would also argue that um, looking at Cursed Child, even though some might not consider that oh, to be yeah. canon, Albus and Scorpius very much queer baby (laughs) in the beginning they've since altered the stage play to make that denouncing not as pronounced i have never been so queer baited as i was with albus and scorpius i wrote a whole (laughs) fan fiction that was printed in an actual book (laughs) i was so baited by that one Uh, thank you for bringing that up it totally slipped my mind i've just like oh i'm never forgetting because it was so ridiculous They might as well have had Harry come out on stage at the end and be like, no homo. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they did that (laughs) with Rose because they made Rose and Scorpius have feelings for one another at the very end of the play. So they basically did that. It's freaking bullshit. So obviously, the idea of queer baiting has been around for a very long time. I don't think you got to this in the notes that you put into the doc, Andrew, but uh, BBC Sherlock was also a really huge example of that john Locke shippers they were like running tumblr for a while and <laughs> running so tumblr. no they really were i mean like you had a super it. hulak fandom was huge 2012 2014 around that time what a, what a dark time on the internet that was um but you know and, and back then you know it kind of raised the question of whether uh this was something that fans were reading far too much into or if this was something that was like being implemented by creators in an effort to get more people tuned in. And that's really kind of what the the root of this matter kind of falls down to. But the interesting thing about the word queer baiting is that now over the course of the past couple of years, more frequently, we've actually seen this term um, specifically directed at real people instead of just at works of fiction. And I'm not just talking about, this in relation to creators of works of fiction themselves, it, it's like actual celebrities that are being accused of queer baiting, oftentimes by 
people that claim to be, you know, fans or stands of these people, which is fascinating to me as somebody that, you know, checks in on multiple fandoms in various online spaces fairly frequently for work. And um, it's it's becoming a growing trend and sometimes to the detriment of the people that are being accused, which is how we circle back to uh, Netflix's Heartstopper, which was the original inspiration for this segment. So in case you might have missed it, one of the stars of this Netflix adaptation named Kit Connor recently uh, came out on Twitter and he ended up coming out, sadly, as a direct result of being accused of queer baiting. So for anybody that hasn't seen Heartstopper, he plays one of the two male leads on the show named Nick Nelson. And the series has been lauded for its fantastic queer representation ever since it hit the streamer. Uh, Specifically on the show, he plays a character that grapples with trying to figure out his sexual identity as a result of his growing attraction to a fellow classmate named Charlie Spring. Uh, The actor that plays Charlie is out and a lot of the actors are out as well. Uh, But Kit Connor himself had never up until you know, a couple of weeks ago, explicitly stated what his sexual orientation was. And this is where things got kind of a little ugly for him because he, you know, was accused again, like I said, of queer baiting and participating in performative activism or performative queerness by, you know, joining fellow out castmates at pride events, for example. And it just kind of went a little too far. So, Basically, what ended up happening is he came back on Twitter after having deactivated for a while to tweet, quote, back for a minute, I'm by congrats on forcing an 18 year old out to out himself. I think some of you may have missed the point of the show. Yeah. So it was really um, sad. It was really sad, especially when you think about the fact that he's very young. Star is still rising. And again, you know, was starring in a show that was meant to showcase that you're allowed to come out and figure yourself out in your own time. Yeah, I don't really know what else to add to this other than to say that it's really unfortunate that he had to come out. He felt like he had to come out under these circumstances and it's situations like these that really make me hate the Internet and how much attention uh, certain rabid fans give to their perceptions on the other hand it's 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 a really difficult line to walk because then there are celebs who maybe really are trying to queer bait i think of harry styles and timothy chalamet they dress in ways you wouldn't expect and i'm not here to say that they can't dress however they want but then they kind of skirt around answering if they're gay or not when they actually are asked these questions. And it's like, if you're confident enough in your masculinity, presumably your sexuality, to wear these types of outfits and to, I don't know, be kind of like, just be different, then why not also just say, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm whatever? Just, just answer. I really think with certain people, Maybe not necessarily these two, maybe one or the other. I, I, I know I'm going to potentially annoy somebody with this, but I think that they're purposely doing it because they like gaining gay fans that they wouldn't have otherwise. They're baiting them. 
They're getting them excited and interested in their music and their art. I feel like it's really difficult, too, because, again, people can come out at any age. And kind of like we were talking about with the example of an 18-year-old, expecting an 18-year-old to have their sexuality completely nailed down is, that's a tall order. And I think for some people, that reality can extend well into adulthood, depending on how they were raised, the, you know, community that they grew up in their culture, like there are so many different factors that can result in somebody not feeling comfortable coming out or even fully having an awareness of what their identity is. And some people are, and and this is where I, I have some ignorance too, because I'm still learning, but there are some people who don't have an attraction in particular, and I'm forgetting the name of of this orientation, and forgive me. Pansexual? Pansexual, thank you. I think that's what I was thinking of. Um, so declaring yourself as gay or bi can feel maybe a little bit too much like a boxed-in <laughs> qualifier to take on or even too much like a binary for somebody who is pansexual. So just trying to, as a straight person, just trying to put that out there yeah. in what is probably a very clunky explanation of, of what it is that I'm thinking. But I, I, think I just it's think possible. it's good to keep it in mind. It's It's absolutely possible. It seems to me to happen too often for that to be the answer for everybody who's queer baiting, mm. whether it's or, you know, I mean, because if we look at works of fiction too, the creators could turn around and say this too. Oh, you know, they're pansexual. They're asexual. They're bisexual. It's like, I, it just really feels like they, they are trying to lead us for business, whether it's a real person or a work of fiction. Right. It's like having your cake and eating it too. And I, I yeah. totally respect um, you know, what you had to say about this, especially because you are the only gay person on this panel. So I, you know, I think that your point is totally valid. For me, as somebody who is straight, and maybe Laura can uh, relate to this too, it just kind of is hard for me to pass judgment. Because on one hand, I do agree that nobody should be forced to come out um, outside of whatever timeline they have set for themselves. And I know it's probably, even though it's frustrating, it's not as easy as people might think for somebody with even a a, a larger, brighter star than uh, Kit Connor, like, you know, somebody like a Harry Styles or a Timothy Chalamet to come out as people might think, because regardless of the fact that we've made some progress, it's still very clear based on the fact that we still see queer baiting happening in um, fictional media that studios know they'll take a hit if they explicitly state their characters are gay, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that people that are on like Team Harry Styles or Taylor Swift is another name that comes up when you talk about queer baiting. The Gaylers are huge as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a huge faction of her fan base is people that, you know, kind of like read into queer subtext in her lyrics and also in the decisions that she makes. But, you know, all of these people have teams behind them that sit there and their entire job is to deliberate whether or not it's a good idea for them to even be like politically active. Yeah. So, 
if if they are deterring people against taking a side on Democrats versus Republicans, for example, why wouldn't they be telling these massive stars, maybe it's not a good idea for you to come out as gay? You know, that's an, that's an excellent mm. point that I want everybody to keep in mind, because Hollywood is cutthroat and vicious and it's all about the money and maintaining the fame. And you are so right. If their agent says you cannot come out one way or the other, they have to follow that because the agent knows what's best in their mind in, ter- in terms of maximizing their profits. And I profits. also feel, and again, like, please just like call me out if you think I'm being dumb because, you know, this is just me being a stupid straight saying this, but I also <laughs> feel like it's unfair to like judge somebody based on their past relationships because that would be bi erasure to say like hairstyles yeah. can't possibly be gay or be bi because we've only ever seen him with women. It's right. just like, it's not, we can't assume that because we don't see everything, you yeah. know, and that's not to defend mm-hmm. people that could genuinely be queer baiting and profiting off of, you know, the queer community or people just that just want to see more representation in their media. But it's just like it's it's not for us to say like we we can't say one way or the other of these people are just money hungry or if they're actually closeted. It's just really hard for me to yeah. pass judgment one way or the other. No, Mm -hmm. I I agree with that. And maybe Harry Styles is straight and he just likes wearing unique clothing on stage. That's fine. But uh, my gut just tells me he's straight and he's wearing this unique clothes because that's his brand. And like, if that's just his brand, okay. To your point, I will say that as Harry Styles, Harry Styles is a a man who presents himself as, as straight based on like what we've seen his past partners look like. He coming out and wearing a dress is going to be received more positively than somebody that is like more flamboyantly queer, for example. Like, like you as an out gay man, if you decided to wear a dress, like, first of all, Laura and I would be like, you go, you know, but like, (laughs) right, exactly. But like, you would be probably judged more than a Harry Styles Somebody like a Harry Styles would. Right, right. Because also you're, like, you're out and proud. Yeah, yeah. And also he's at the top of his career and like a lot right. of people will just say, oh, he's being a David Bowie. He's being yeah. uh, Freddie Mercury. And of and course, like, he's- oh, how how avant-garde of Harry Styles. Like how comfortable is he in his sexuality? But the same is not often said for people that are queer, Yeah, you know, and that's where the problem lies for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I also I always think it's interesting when conversations come up about rock stars wearing eccentric outfits when there are a number of institutions, be they religious, academic, political, legal, whatever, where people wear all kinds of eccentric outfits and society does not like bat an eye at that but if a man wears a dress outside of those spaces it becomes a debate for people which i just i think is interesting um but something i wanted to point out from our discord and and i asked before sharing this so this is coming a little bit late but um chloe our social media manager shared what i think is representative of a generational shift On this front, um, Chloe said, I never came out and I'm pansexual. 
A lot of my LGBTQIA friends didn't either, and we didn't feel like it was necessary in today's world or in our community. Why is it anyone's business who I fuck or love? I like to tell people my sexuality is whoever I think the hottest person in the room is. (laughs) That's a good take. And yeah, that's a great point. And I think as older millennials, we love to see that where it's not even a big deal anymore. Whereas when we were younger, it was a bigger deal. Um, so it's been normalized and and that's amazing. I guess to just bring back the conversation to generally queer baiting, I do think it's a big issue, mainly in fiction, but because we don't have enough evidence to point one way or the other for certain celebrities, I- I'm not sure how big of an issue it is definitively in terms of real people well, right now. And, and this probably brings us to a good point in our discussion where I had some questions to ask for all of us to mull over. Um, do, do we think it's okay to accuse real people of queer baiting, or is that kind of a slippery slope? If there's enough evidence, I think. I think hindsight is going to answer that question for people. And I'm not going to name specific celebrities because I don't want to... Co- accuse anybody but i think in time we'll look back at certain celebrities and be like they were queer baiting back then you think like Katy perry uh oh like example, i kissed a girl, I kissed a girl. maybe i actually was looking at her earlier today because it came up in one of these articles i was looking at and she said oh yeah i fooled around with a girl before and but she wasn't being very specific it was kind of vague yeah i mean did Katy perry write that song that's an easy thing to look up yeah no that's true and and if she didn't write the song, somebody she just got it off of another producer, then that probably tells you that yes, she was queer baiting. And look, it's mm-hmm. a good song. It's a fun song, and that came out in what two thousand eight. That was a little uh, risque back then. That was shocking. That's true. Yeah. I kissed a girl, yeah. and I liked it. She didn't just kiss the girl; she liked it. Mm-hmm. High school lesbians back then—they were like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> I was I think just some red. Guys were too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> well, speaking, of, K- Katy Perry actually leads very well into my next question. Um, do we think that artists should be allowed to use queer themes in their art if they haven't explicitly stated that they're not straight? <sighs> this is kind of like the question, can a non-gay actor play a gay role? Mm-hmm. Can a non-trans actor play a trans role? What is the message in the song? What's their relationship with LGBTQ rights? Those are the first two questions I would probably ask. If they haven't been like an outspoken ally, like, I don't take Gaga, for example. I think she's identified as straight. She has born this way. This LGBTQ anthem, absolute anthem for the queer community. We accept it that she's writing this song and she's not queer. I might be wrong. I have to look this up as <laughs> once I finish this answer. Because she's an ally of the community and she is wall to wall in support of queer people. And she's lifting us up. So I think I think it can be okay, but it's gonna depend on a couple of circumstances. Yeah. I think it's hard to police art and based on that and speaking as a straight person, I don't think I get to be the one who says whether or not someone is queer baiting. I think it's always good to like any any other scenario where 
something like this is being called out to really look to the affected communities in question when you're deciding, you know, who you take your lead from and who who you're going to listen to as you try to become better informed. Um, but yeah, as, as a straight person, I don't feel like I'm the right person to say if someone's queer baiting or not. I am with you there. I think that like my gut um, instinct is to give most people the benefit of the doubt if it feels right, especially if it's somebody that hasn't explicitly stated one way or the other if they're fully straight, because, you know, as we established earlier on in this conversation, if somebody hasn't said, we don't know why they haven't said. And it doesn't feel right to stifle perhaps their only outlet to be able to say that in in whatever little way they can. But in an effort to, you know, get some more opinions on this, we did toss this question up on Instagram to pull our audience. So 87% of people that voted said that they were okay with this. 1% said absolutely not. And 12% said I don't love it. So yeah, that was kind of interesting results. I didn't think that it was going to go that way. Yeah, some people had uh, some opinions that they shared as well. They wrote out longer messages. So thanks for that. Gaga did say she is bisexual back in 2009. Um, so that kind of cancels out my argument, though. I would say if she identified with straight, I would still accept her writing music for queer people all the same because she has been an ally for so long. And it's never come off fake either. That's another factor yeah, too. It's right, like, does right. It, is it disingenuous? Does it come off that way? No, I really actually appreciated your point. You gave me a lot to think about, which is that, you know, I've, I've never questioned Gaga. And I've never thought about it. But I think it is to your point because she's been such an outspoken ally and because she's sort of put her money where her mouth is. And so I feel like I, I don't I don't ever feel like she's seeking advantage of her audience. Right. And then the total flip side of that is J.K. Rowling. Dumbledore's gay. I don't like trans people. Exactly. And then Chris comes out and she real. writes off. Yeah, she signs right. off on Scorpius. Right. Right. Gaga's been consistent and we can't say the same exactly. for certain other people. Yeah. No, I, I definitely think that is a good way to examine it. All right. Good to move on? I think so. We are going to get to water today. Yes. Yes. No, I want to get to water today. (laughs) Come hell or high water (laughs) or low water. So we've been wanting to talk about this for a few weeks. I wanted to talk about the mega drought that's been happening out west and what states are doing to be less dependent on the Colorado River. We've brought it up a couple times over the years. Uh, The river has been rapidly shrinking over the past 20 years, and it's a vital water source to much of the west. So it's a very important topic. Let's start with some good news. In July, Californians reduced their water usage by 10% following new conservation rules like a ban on watering some decorative grass. And also, California Water Agency said they can reduce their dependence on the Colorado River by about 400,000 acre feet per year beginning next year, which is about 9% of what California is entitled to under current usage rights. Pam, have you seen or heard about any water restrictions in your area? Oh, yes. But I feel like (laughs) (laughs) Northern California is 
really not to like shit on other parts of California, but kind of to shit on other parts of California. Northern California takes droughts very seriously. And as soon as any kind of drought alarm bell rings, all you see around here is just like conserve water and remember not to, you know, waste water. So anyway, to answer your original question, there are restrictions for us, uh, specifically in my neck of the woods. We are only allowed to uh, water ornamental landscaping twice a week on Tuesdays and Fridays. And there are times where we're allowed to do that as Good. well. I'm not really sure how they enforce this, but I, I, I feel like it's probably a tattletale system. Oh, yeah. That's what we have in Vegas. And I've reported a motherfucker once or twice. <laughs> I've reported people. Also, you have? Yes. My neighbor. My neighbor. Some water leaks. I go on the website. I upload a photo. I say, this is what happened at this time. It's very easy, actually, to report people. And actually, in Vegas, there's a team of people dedicated to just driving around looking for water violations. Just looking for water violations. Yeah. So that might be coming to your area. You wouldn't happen to be one of those people, would you, Andrew? No. Of course, violate. Oh, you mean driving around? Yeah. (laughs) Beep, beep, beep. Hey, I see a leak over there in your front yard. No, I'm not one of those people. These are people in paid positions. I'm not talking about like a random podcaster. Oh, it's not like a vigilante troop of no um, water violator (laughs) watch patrol water watch. (laughs) No. Yeah. We also have some other like statewide rules like um. They don't want you to be washing your car without a hose that has a shut off nozzle. Um, I, I've actually, I mean, I think that you shouldn't be doing that anyway. I've just kind of started taking my car to the car wash. There's a car wash around me that uses recycled water to wash cars. So I just like go there, but I've seen other people get really creative. So if they're washing their car with this shut off nozzle, they'll drive their car onto the lawn. And then they they water the lawn. Oh, okay. In relation, yeah, yeah because recycling. you can use like um, dirty water to to wash your. I mean, not to wash, but to water your plants. So, like, oh, if you okay. can collect, like, say, like, if you're doing a load of laundry, if you if you can collect the water from that, you can use that to to water your plants and stuff. So it's a nice way to to save water. And then um, also, this is really kind of sucky. They've also introduced flex pricing on water for us too. So it's cheaper, say, to like do a load of laundry um, before three p.m. or after um, nine p.m. Okay. Because they've like statistically proven that people tend to use more water um, between the hours of you know three oh, to nine. Okay, yeah, that makes and then sense. like the price of water in general is going up, which I have like a little bit of an issue with. It's going to go up here too as well to discourage water usage. Yeah. So okay, so there's quite a bit going on. That's good to see, and maybe that answers why uh, California has been able to conserve water, like I just shared. So. California and other lower basin states, those are Arizona and Nevada, had been asked earlier this year by the federal government to cut usage by two to four million acre feet annually to maintain necessary Colorado River volume. They were supposed to come to an agreement over the summer, but they missed the deadline and apparently nothing's been worked out. The government has threatened, and I love this, the government has threatened if they don't work it out, we will do that for them. And I think that's badass. This is why we love government sometimes. They'll just step in and get the problem freaking handled. 
here's another thing that's super interesting. So they, they need to scale back how much water has been pulled out of this river because the existing agreements that they all draw from started with the Colorado River Compact, which was signed, funnily enough, 100 years ago as of November 24th. But it's always been flawed because they allow the states to pull certain amounts of water no matter how much water has been flowing into the river. That's why for each of the last 20 years, during the course of this mega drought, the states have used 1.2 million acre feet more than they should be annually. And this is the reason the water levels have been sinking in uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which is further up the Colorado River. Wow. So Lake Mead is situated next door to Vegas. And if it does sink below certain thresholds, water will not be able to flow through the Hoover Dam. And that's necessary for California and Arizona to receive their cut of the water. So if the water can no longer go through the dam, California and Arizona are in trouble. And the dam will no longer be able to generate electricity. Here's another thing I have to bring up. And I did defend Vegas a few months ago, but I need to do it again. We see these photos of Lake Mead shrinking and you'll see the satellite photo and Lake it's like a time lapse and you see Lake Mead getting smaller and smaller and smaller and then right next to Lake Mead is Las Vegas it's like a 30 minute drive and you see Lake Mead shrinking and Vegas expanding and and you just look at that on Instagram and you're like oh that's the problem Vegas is expanding sucking up all the water that is not the problem and Vegas has been so far ahead. They've been thinking so far ahead on this issue that actually the latest and third water intake valve for Nevada was completed in Lake Mead in 2020. And it's at the bottom of Lake Mead. So as long as there's some water in Lake Mead, Vegas can, uh, Nevada can still sip out the water that they need. In other words, Vegas and Nevada are the safest in this situation because we have this extra valve that's going to suck in water from the bottom as opposed to the higher up on the side of Lake Mead. And I have to remind everybody again, Nevada is not the reason that the water levels have been have been shrinking. Southern Nevada's commitment to conservation has resulted in a 48% decline in per person water use per day since 2002, despite the addition of more than 750,000 new residents in Vegas. And then there's also incentives for people to get rid of real grass lawns. New this year, restrictions on pool sizes. There's tight watering schedules, similar to what Pam mentioned. And we reclaim nearly 100% of water that is used indoors. So we just have amazing uh, recycling programs here and water conservation programs here that other states and the rest of the world need to look at as certain parts of the world deal with mega droughts. So even though we only moved here three years ago, I am really proud of and impressed by water conservation efforts and recycling efforts here. Here's another crazy stat. More water evaporates from Lake Mead each year than Nevada uses annually. Wow. Is that thanks in part to global warming? Yeah, partly, but also Lake Mead is just a very large body of water and it's always been hot here. So, you know, water is going to evaporate. But it's just amazing to me that evaporation is a bigger issue than an entire fucking state. <laughs> That's quickly growing, too, by the way. So all of that is to say, again, really impressive efforts going on out here. That's what's happening with the Colorado River in a nutshell. 
I recommended a book a couple weeks ago, Where the Water Goes by David Owen. Really excellent book on the whole situation. So many fascinating aspects. But the TLDR here is that, A, Nevada's not the problem. B, too much water is being taken out of the Colorado River, no matter how much water is actually flowing into it. And C, the latest news is that the states are not in agreement yet about how to reduce their usage by two to four million acre feet as the federal government is asking. But hopefully some major new cuts are agreed upon in the next year or two. I have a prediction. We had a very wet monsoon season out here. Oh, that's great. It was a lot of fun to watch. Monsoon seasons, my understanding, don't really help Lake Mead. It it did raise a couple inches, actually, but Mm -hmm. regardless, nice to see. My prediction is we're going to have a good river. uh, We're going to have a good year and a good river up north. Basically, the Colorado River gets all its water from Colorado, the Rocky Mountains. Snows up there. The more it snows, the more is going to flow down into the river. My prediction, because it's been so wet out here recently, we had a huge day of rain just a few days ago. Now, we're not in Colorado, but you know, weather systems, they come across here before heading to Colorado. I think we're going to have a good winter. It's all about that snowpack up in the Colorado Rockies. The more that's built up, the more is going to melt and flow into the rivers. So all this to say, I feel like we're going to see Lake Mead rise nicely. Plus, you combine that with water conservation efforts. The states are pulling back their usage. See what California promised for next year. Um, I'm just feeling very optimistic about I won't go so far to say it's the mega drought's about to end, but I think we're going to have some more wet years than the last 20 years have looked like. I really hope so. And and listening to you talk about all of this just kind of infuriates me because out east, we have no such problem. As a matter of fact, it feels like every year gets rainier and rainier than the last. And here in Georgia, is it just speaking personally, we get so much rain at certain times of the year that our our ground gets saturated. So we deal with actually quite a bit of flooding sometimes out here. And it just feels like such a waste that you have parts of the country where that's happening and you have parts of the country that are in dire need of water. And there's not some kind of program to facilitate that. I mean, pump the water what? out of the east and move it west. Yes, yes, it does seem like a very simple solution, and it would work if we could build giant pipes to cross the country. <laughs> I know, I know, or even, I mean, Jesus, I know that we build fucking oil lines across the country. <laughs> Why couldn't we do this? Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. yeah. Especially because out here, I know that it's it, there's a fine line between like too much rain and just enough rain because if the rain comes too quick, which we have seen before um, in terms of like larger storms that we've had, it, it also doesn't correlate to more water going into the reservoirs. So it, it's a slippery slope for sure. Because the systems are so overwhelmed, they can't take it all in. Mm-hmm. But we can build large systems that move water. I mentioned yeah, yeah. California and Arizona pull from the Colorado River that those go hundreds of miles, I believe. And actually this book that I I plugged talks about it and follows those paths and it's an amazing system. It's breathtaking that we do take water and move it so far. In many cases it's like an open air river 
where it's being transported. It's not just pipes underground. It's and it's going move being moved up mountains and stuff. It's really fascinating. It's something like you never think about. But yeah, I mean, with enough government funding and I mean, California can't even get a freaking um high speed rail line across the state built. So we're fucked in terms of like <laughs> a water line moving across the entire continent. I want to believe it'll happen. It's it would work, dare I say, but yeah, it's just with all the bureaucracy going on and the red well, tape. <laughs> yeah, and then you would have to get, you know, politicians and voters in all of these states to agree on this and right. that's going to be an uphill battle. Who's paying for it? Environmental concerns, sacred land concerns, the list goes on. That's yeah, yeah that's a big one as well. Valid question mm-hmm. for sure. And we also just have a lot of selfish fucking people in this country who just <laughs> even if they had an excess of groundwater because of all the rain they're getting, I could see a significant portion of people being like, fuck them. Not my problem. It's right. going to be like Fury That's our Road, water. but real life. <laughs> yeah. Those damn coastal elites can't have our water. This is Georgia water. And realistic- <laughs> realistically, we'll also say, I know this was like a subject that we sh- we've shelved um, in the past, but, you know, water concerns are only national concerns when they're um, directly affecting specific communities like Flint, Michigan is a really good example of a water crisis that went on far longer than it would have if mm-hmm. it was in, you know, a wider community, uh, a more yeah. affluent community. And so I don't know. I mean, California is a fairly affluent state. So I guess maybe if it gets particularly bad here, depending on where we might see, you right. know, some larger concern. But, you know, like these droughts almost always directly affect um, people in the Central Valley the worst as well. And as long as it's not affecting agriculture, then people are probably not as inclined to care as if it's just directly affecting normal people. Yeah. And in this book, it brought up a point that I hadn't thought about. Over the winter, where do you think all your fruits and vegetables come from? Out west, where the water, where the temperatures are nice year round. Mm Mm-hmm. The Colorado River is used for agriculture primarily. It is mainly farms that are the problem. But it's like, where else are you going to move these farms? And of course, there's decades and centuries of family history that would have to be uprooted. It's just like, it's an impossible. There's so many players in all of this. And they have the the space and the soil to do it. You know, like, yeah. I, I know that you've taken the drive up and down the five quite a number of times it's all agriculture yeah including one very very smelly farm that you have to turn your ear off when you the cow farm (laughs) anyone who's driven from la to sf knows what we're talking about Mm -hmm. you want to die when you go buy it and then you get mcdonald's like an hour later (laughs) (laughs) you're like screw you cows i'm gonna show you by the way, I mean, just real quick, the Mississippi River has been facing a drought too this year. And it's amazing because it's like something you would never think about. It's always been, you know, to to Laura's point, always getting so much rain in the east and Mississippi River hitting record lows. No bodies discovered as far as I'm aware. So it's not used to hide crimes quite like Lake Mead <laughs> is used. <laughs> well, I think. Being a lake, it's a little more static, right? So you're going to find the bodies in a river. They're going to get washed away. I see. (laughs) I see. 
a dolphin's going to eat them once they hit the gulf. Got it. That Yeah, dolphins are known to do that for sure. Um, okay, yeah, an orca it's, whale. <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting that you bring up, you know, the farms that are impacted too, because they're kind of getting a double whammy here between the water crisis, you know, that is you know, just through overuse of water, particularly out West, but also climate change plays a factor. And as climate change gets worse and, you know, the climate is becoming hotter in some of these areas, they're beginning to sustain the types of, you know, insects and parasites that previously couldn't have survived in this hemisphere and they're coming and destroying these crops. That's I know it's been a big problem for orange groves in Florida, I think out in California too. So um it's just it's a multifaceted issue. And it is it it gets immensely complicated and we could probably go super nitty-gritty on this for an entire episode if we wanted to. Yeah, we can share updates when there's big updates. I mean, the Colorado River Compact and the agreements amongst the states. We didn't even touch the upper basin states, Utah, Colorado, etc. Um there's just so much to discuss there. But again, check out that book, Where the Water Goes by David Owen. And there's similar books too. That's this is just the only one I've read thus far. So, all right. Uh, by the way, I have seen that Trump has filed paperwork to run for president. So paperwork is in ahead of his speech that he's giving tonight. It's currently 9.05 here. Hannity has just started. He's waiting for Hannity to give his opening remarks, and then he'll get into his announcements. Fox News is probably popping mad boners right now over that. Oh, God. It's like New Year's Eve over there. I but know. I, I bet. <laughs> So, hey, by the way, over on our Patreon last week, we had a great muggle sock. It was an instant hit. Our patrons were very excited about it after we finished recording it. We were reading our old AIM Away messages, uh, specifically, or sorry, our old AIM conversations and Away messages between Laura and I. It was a lot of fun. We'll do another one of those installments in the months ahead. And uh, we just reminisced on the good old days of AIM and uh, away messages as well. So don't miss that one. Lots of new muggle suck awaiting you in that segment. And this week, we're going to stay in that nostalgic lane ahead of the Santa Claus TV series starring Tim Allen coming to Disney Plus in a few days. We're going to talk about movies and TV shows and video games that haven't aged well, and ones that have, because the Santa Claus the movie has held up, but not so much other classic movies that we loved. At least I think it's it's held up, but we'll discuss that in After Dark today, patreon.com slash millennial. And also, if you use Apple Podcasts, there's a subscribe button right within the millennial page in the Apple Podcasts app. You could subscribe and get Mega Millennial, which is the main show, ad-free with After Dark at the end. Again, right through Apple Podcasts, $5.99 a month if you don't want to use Patreon. So no matter how you support us, we appreciate it. Time for some recommendations. Um, I want to recommend Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities on Netflix. Um, it's, you know, typical del Toro, but it's also just a really well done kind of anthology series where the stories 
appear, you know, over the course of the series, they they start to appear to have some common threads that maybe you didn't see before. Um, for any Potter fans, Rupert Grint makes an appearance in an episode, and he did a really, really good job. Um, but yeah, if you're into more spooky stuff like me, and you never want spooky season to end, check it out. <laughs> Speaking of spooky, one of our listeners, Rex Laura, has confirmed that human remains have been found on the bank of the drought-shrunken oh. Mississippi River just last month. There we go. See, the dolphins missed one. Andrew, they caught you. <laughs> <laughs> I was so sure that body of water wasn't going to uh, shrink. <laughs> I want to recommend Tunic. This is an RPG game that's also a uh, tribute to the Legend of Zelda games, specifically the ones of the 80s and 90s. It's a very difficult game because you get pieces of the game's instruction manual over the course of the game instead of up front. And the instruction manual pages aren't that clear either. So it's a lot of looking around and just trying to figure out what's next. Or if you're like me, just Googling where to go next and getting all your answers online. But it's a beautiful game. It's, again, a nice tribute to Zelda. So I've been enjoying that aspect. And it's also just a tribute to 90s video games in general because of the instruction manual aspect. And when you pause, it like turns into like a kind of a 90s television. It's it's really neat. So it's available for virtually all platforms, I believe. And because it's not a AAA title, it's only about like 30 bucks. So definitely check that out if you're in for a challenging RPG. And I wanted to recommend O'Keefe's Working Hands. Um, winter is here for most people and my hands tend to get fairly dry in the winter. I'm also washing my hands more because it's flu season. And O'Keefe's has just always worked for me really well. It's great if you have like, you know, suffer from chopped hands or cracked hands. Uh, fingers or anything like that. And I really like that it's easy to rub in. It's not super greasy. You can get in like a little tub from like almost any drugstore or Target or Amazon, or you can get it in a little like squeezy tube. So it's just really nifty to have around if you're trying to keep your hands from being dry and gross. Make sure you're following us for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And do leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have any feedback, you can write to millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And you could follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. By the way, we will be off next week for Thanksgiving, but we will be back the next week. So happy Thanksgiving all you Americans. No matter where you live, we're thankful for you and not Donald Trump. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye.